Man, oh man. We did not know what we were getting with this year 2020, did we? Um, it's Tuesday, March 18th, as I'm recording this, so you'll be listening sometime later than that. And I am uh I have been trying to figure out if I had anything useful to say about really anything <laughs> that's going on in the world right now. And so I, I have kind of been mulling some ideas over the past couple days of what I could talk about. And, um, I asked my husband if he wanted to do like a prepper, you know, episode. Um, he got into prepping a little bit. Um, like we're like prepping light sort of, (laughs) um, years ago, that was years and years ago, but, um, he, he wasn't really feeling it. He's been pretty busy at work and things have just been crazy, right? It's just been crazy. So, um, but finally today it it came to me what odd spin I wanted to take on world events. So that's what you're going to get tonight. You are going to get the oddly adulting pandemic edition. (laughs) Um, like you don't already have enough of coronavirus and COVID-19 in your ear right now, right? But hopefully this will be, I hope, um, you know, it's all in good fun. This is an entertainment show. So this is intended to give you kind of like a little re- a little bit of relief from hearing all of the seriousness and the doom and gloom and whatnot. So I hope you guys don't think I'm being like irreverent about the fact that it's a serious situation. But I say all that and now I'm going to say, First things first, y'all don't have to worry about me. I'm not going to get no Coronas because I only drink Mick out of a Slim can. Okay. So we good. We good here. Um, all, all joke, all joking aside, I've basically been on quarantine for a few days just in case <laughs> we're just keeping the kids home. But anyway, so here is where I went in my odd little brain. Um, I have a fascination with disease. Oh, I would also like to say, guess what word I learned this week? It's probably a word we've all learned this week. The word is epidemiology. Okay. Now that's not really, it's not a new word. I've heard this word many, many times, right? You, you probably have as well. What I did not realize, (laughs) this sounds so, this feels so dumb to say out loud. What I did not realize is that epidemiology is the study of epidemics. I'm not sure what I thought epidemiology was the study of. Maybe I thought it was like a fancy word for studying germs or something. I couldn't, could not tell you what I thought it was, but my my mind was a little bit blown to discover that epidemiologists are people who study epidemics. Like, why, why was that not obvious to me? Anyway, um... So I, I have always kind of had an, an interest in a fascination in disease and things like that. Um, kind of morbid, I guess. I don't know, maybe. But this was heightened or encouraged, either one, by an experience that I had in college, which was when it came time to choose. So, okay, I was, let's back up for a second. I was, uh, I was an English major. And a, and a secondary education minor. So the, because the plan upon graduation was I was going to go be a high school English teacher, right? So I ended up being a middle school English teacher. But um, 
But so my degree was in English. So with an English degree, it's a liberal, liberal arts degree. You um, only had to take two math classes. Praise God. Right, Dad? <laughs> um, and big shout out to my friend John who let me copy his homework. I mean, helped me with my homework every night um, for the first math class that we took together. And I only had to take two science classes, which actually just to take another little rabbit trail. I actually really love science. And when I was trying to decide what kind of a teacher I wanted to be, it, I really waffled in between English or science because I really enjoyed science class. And so I thought it might be like more fun to, ma- to major in science. But then I found out about labs and I found out that labs were like this gigantic albatross of a thing that you had to get through in order to have a science degree. And I decided that I would rather just write papers. I'm just my, that was way more in my wheelhouse. So anyway, um, so I had to take two science classes for my major and I'm not sure how I did this. I like, I don't know if I wasn't under the direction of a good mentor or what do they call that person and call an advisor. I don't know where my advisor was. Maybe my advisor was just kind of checked out, but for whatever reason, I did not get my science done in either my freshman or my sophomore year. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened there, but I get into my junior year and I'm like, Oh crap, I got to take science. What am I going to do? Well, here's where it kind of worked out for me a little bit. I was able to take one science class. I took physical science and I took it at a cooperating state school that would give me credit at my private school that I attended. And it was a summer class and it was, a um, man, now I can't remember what they used to call these, but it, it's basically like an accelerated class where you do a whole semester class in one month, four weeks. We went five days a week from like 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. or some crazy time, like five to nine or six to 10. It was basically four hours a day, five days a week for four weeks. And we learned an entire semester's worth of physical science, as well as we did, um, sort of like labs, but not, not as, um, not as hardcore as like a regular semester long science class. So, and I actually really enjoyed that, got it out of the way. I did that between my sophomore and I'm sorry, between my not sophomore and junior. Cause I got married between my sophomore and junior. Year. I did that during my, <laughs> in between my junior and senior year of college. Okay. I don't recommend this method, but the other cool thing. So being a junior and having to sign up for a science class, well, as a junior, you have a lot more, um, seniority for, um, getting classes. I can't remember any of my college vocabulary. What is it called when you get, when you go and you sign up for classes? It's not called like enrolling. It's called something else. Anyway, I'm just totally dumb tonight, apparently. Um, but when you're a junior, you have more seniority. So you get to do it sooner. So you get a, like a better pick, right? So I showed up to pick my son, my science class. And I think some of the other stuff I was signing up for that, um, semester was like Shakespeare, um, you know, probably like British lit two or three or five or seven or whatever. Southern lit, um, all lit classes, basically maybe rhetoric and writing. I don't know, but all lit classes. And then I had to take the science class. And, um, the registrar was like, oh, 
um, we're piloting a new class this semester and it still has some openings. You know, would you be interested? And I said, well, what class is that? And they said, oh, I think you'll really like it. It doesn't have any labs. And I was like, boom, so I'm sold. What is it? And they said, it's called the Great Neglected Diseases. And I was like, how did you know? How did you know this would be the best class ever? So my junior year of college, for one of my science credits, I was enrolled in a class called the Great Neglected Diseases. And as the name, the name total is a total spoiler alert, we studied diseases and not not like popular ones, not ones that everybody was talking about, but diseases that had been neglected in the public eye. So we learned about all of these super weird diseases and the epidemiology of how they went spread. So there's one that has always stuck in my mind. And so today when I was thinking about wanting to do a podcast and trying to sort through like my ideas of, you know, what do I, what, what could I even add to the conversation here? What would I even want to talk about? You know, people don't want to, they don't need any more advice. Like there's too much, there's too much of that going on. And I was like, oh my gosh, I should talk about that crazy disease that I learned about in college. So I went a researching, got to find my phone cause it's pulled up on my phone internets. All right. This disease is called <laughs> Dichrocelium. Oh, my thing is moving around. Here we go. Let's start again. Dichrocelium dendriticum. Okay. Dichrocelium dendriticum. And let me explain to you how my, I'm going to tell you how my professor told us about it. Okay. He was a very funny guy. And he was like relatively young. I want to say he was probably like my age. So probably like mid thirties, uh, mid to late thirties, I guess. And so he was kind of, you know, like very informal about the way he would teach and that kind of thing. And he, having been in the world of disease and epidemiology and whatever, he was actually, he had all kinds of crazy cool stories about like at the, at this time. Okay. So this would have been in 2000. Three, yeah, 2003, he was part of a trial where he had been, they had injected him with killed AIDS virus to see what would happen inside of his body. And so he was all the time going down to the CDC and doing stuff. He, and he had this great long list of all the things that he'd had injected in him and how he was being like a human test tube or test case or whatever. So pretty interesting guy. So this is how he tells it to us. He says, all right, we're going to learn about a disease today. That's going to make you think I did drugs before I came to class. (laughs) I was like, whoa, that's a great opener. So basically the way that this disease works is that it is, it needs, it needs host, host bodies, right? Okay. So you have sheep, And what do sheep eat? Okay, they eat grass, right? Well, what else eats grass? Ants eat grass. So basically, there is this disease. There's this, actually, I think it's a, is it a helminth? I think it's a helminth. Hold on. Let's see. Let's see. I should have read this. Mm, It gets passed in through eggs. Okay. 
I should have done better reading. Sorry, guys. Sorry. I'm unprepared for class. I'm unprepared for class. Basically, eggs make their way to the ground. I'll explain that part in a second. Ants, while they're on the ground, as they're going to the grass to eat the grass, the eggs, the ants eat the eggs. Then they go on to have their grass meal. But unfortunately, as their bodies are digesting the eggs, it causes, (laughs) it's so crazy. I'm just going to read what it says. It causes a cataleptic cramp when the temperature is around 15 to 20 Celsius or below, for example, early in the morning. These cramps can paralyze the ant on the tips of herbage and grass where grazing ruminants can easily ingest it. So basically, the ants get poisoned by the egg, but not before they can climb up a stalk of grass, chomp on it, and then get paralyzed. And so there's all of these little paralyzed ants hanging off of blades of grass. And then unsuspecting sheep come along, and they don't care if they eat ants. It's not a big deal to them. And so they start chowing down on the fresh morning grass that the paralyzed ants are hanging off of. And boom, they ingest the ant, which ingested the egg. Therefore, the egg inside the sheep's body, listen to this. In the gut of the definitive hosts, okay, that'd be the the sheep, the... X, the something or other. What's the M-E stand for? Hmm. I don't know. The egg. We'll call it the egg. The eggs exist and migrate into the small bile ducts, to the larger bile ducts, and then to the gallbladder. They then develop into mature egg-producing flukes in the bile ducts. Okay, so these are worms. Does that make them... What did I say? They were helmets? After reproduction by hermaphroditism or cross-fertilization, adults of dicrocelium release eggs into the environment through their host's feces following a pre-patent period of about two months. So, the worms get born in the sheep's digestive tract. They reproduce. The sheep excretes eggs. The eggs hit the ground in their poo, the sheep's poo, and then the ants feast on the poo on their way to the grass. And then they get paralyzed. They hang off the grass. The sheep eats the ant. The ant goes in the body. The body has the egg. The egg turns into a worm. The worm goes out of the sheep through its poo and it hits the ground and it all starts over again. Is that not crazy? I mean, that is indeed a neglected disease. We should all know about this because that is an an amazing life story for a little worm and it can kill I'm pretty sure it can kill the sheep like it causes major issues um to have all these worms squirming so whole if you're not completely grossed out by now which if you are I'm sorry um I just feel like that that is a disease that everyone needs to know about because it is completely odd dicrocelium dendriticum crazy, right? Okay. But that wasn't all I had to say. I'm sure you're not surprised by that. But like I said, my fascination with diseases was encouraged by this cool class that I took in college. And so 
as all of this coronavirus news has been coming out, I've been trying to, I don't um, ingest a lot of media really directly. Excuse me. I listen to some, um, I listen to some news sources, but my main source of news is not straight news. It's like a, an analysis of the news. So, um, so I have definitely been increasing my media consumption and I can first of all tell the difference that it's had on my mental health. I don't recommend it. I do not recommend increasing your media consumption during times such as these, but I am super curious to find out about like the epidemiology of this coronavirus. So I have one of the things I've heard is a lot of people are comparing it to the Spanish flu. And that's really scary because the Spanish flu was a pretty famous uh, pandemic. It was actually one of only, I think, it. And then there was a, an Asian flu that happened in the 60s. And then the H1N1 swine flu that happened in like the early 2000s. Those are really the only major flu epidemics that we've had in modern history. So, um, for that reason, I was really interested when people started comparing this to the Spanish flu, I thought, Ooh, I want to do a history lesson, see what's up about this. So I, um, rather than getting on the internet, because I've just been on, it feels like I've just been on like one social media platform, the other social media platform, Google email, you know, news, whatever. It's just too much. So I was like, I'm going to go read a book. And so what better book than a set of encyclopedias, right? So I went to our encyclopedias, which these are, hmm, what year is this? We bought them at a yard sale. Actually, I don't think we bought them. I think our friends gave them to us. Okay. This is a 1989 (laughs) set of encyclopedias, but all of this stuff is ancient history, right? So it wouldn't have changed. So first I picked up the S to try and find Spanish flu. It wasn't in there. Then I picked up the P to find pandemic and under pandemic, it said C epidemic. So then I went to epidemic and it said C influenza. So here's where I landed. I landed in influenza and that is where I got some of the most basic information about the flu epidemics. So just reading this quick little blurb here, it says one of the worst global epidemics of influenza occurred in 1918 to 1919. About 20 million people, including more than 500,000 Americans died in this epidemic. Okay. So half a million people in 1918, but well spread between 1918 and 1919 half a million Americans and 20 million worldwide died in the Spanish flu epidemic. That was good information, but it didn't give me like all of those little things that I really wanted to know. I wanted to know like some, I wanted like salacious details. This was more of like a news report. So I ended up having to go to the Googles and this is where the interesting stuff is where I found the interesting stuff. And of course I found it on Wikipedia, so take that for what it's worth. But the Spanish flu was a strangely or poorly or um I don't know, I guess if you're an epidemic, there's always it's always a good time for an epidemic. Um 
if you're the germ, but it was poorly timed in order to receive attention in the news during the day because it was piggybacking off of World War One. So because World War One, because there were so many um, deaths in World War One, um, they kind of just passed over it in the news. Like it was not a huge news situation like what we're experiencing today because of the fact that we had just been through this major war and a lot of young people died in the war. So it wasn't really that newsworthy that a lot of young people were dying from the flu. It was just sort of like death was just sort of everywhere. So interestingly, there are some hypotheses about what the source of the flu was. The first major um, suspected location was a UK troop staging and hospital camp in France. Now, you might be asking yourself, if it originated in France, why did they call it the Spanish flu? Well, that's because they didn't really make a big deal in the news or even a deal at all about this flu until it had left France and it had started affecting people in Spain. So when it started happening in Spain is when it took, when people started taking notice, that's how it became known as the Spanish flu. Um, but, oh, sorry, got my notifications turned on. But then here's a little interesting thing. (laughs) This is a little puzzler here. There have been statements that the epidemic originated in the United States. Historian Alfred W. Crosby, don't know the guy, stated that the flu originated in Kansas, and popular author John Barry described Haskell County, Kansas as the point of origin. So, how odd is this, guys? This week, we have the global pandemic of coronavirus breaking out. And do you know which state is the first state to cancel the entire school year for the rest of the year? You guessed it. It's Kansas. (laughs) I mean, this, I'm just making wild, I'm just making wild assumptions. I'm like that meme of the crazy guy standing at the whiteboard with all of the little strings attached. Um, I mean, what if, you guys? How crazy would that be? That would just be crazy. Okay, now another thing. Oh, what did I do? I turned the page here. Let me see. Another thing that I learned about the the flu, which, uh, where did it go? (laughs) I'm trying to remember which source I found this in. I have been thinking about the, like, societal effects of how the Spanish flu affected society as a whole, like the sociological effects of it, because everyone, like the big buzzword, um, or buzz phrase, I guess, not buzzword, but buzz phrase from all of this has been, you know, um, life as we know it shut down or like life as we know it stopped. And everybody is feeling these massive disruptions to their, you know, quote unquote, normal life. And so I'm really curious to know, I was really curious to know what affected the Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919, what effect did it have on society as a whole? And, you know, whether or not we can extrapolate 
from there, what we think might happen after we come through this new pandemic. Also, side note, have y'all seen that hilarious meme about um, the Roaring Twenties? Like, y'all wanted the Roaring Twenties. Uh, okay, cool. Global global disease coming right up. No, wait, that's not what we meant. Oh, and also the economy is going to shut down. No, wait, that we didn't mean like that. And then, oh, uh, LOL, by the way, bars won't be open anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, it's so funny because it's true. All right. So one of the things that I, when I went looking, this is also from Wikipedia. I thought I found it in the encyclopedia, but I didn't. Uh, regarding economic effects. Many, many businesses in the entertainment and service industries suffered losses in revenue while the healthcare industry reported profit gains. I think we can all assume that that's going to be the same here. Historian Nancy Bristow has argued that the pandemic, when combined with the increasing number of women attending college, contributed to the success of women in the field of nursing. This was due, in part, to the failure of medical doctors, who were predominantly men, to contain and prevent the illness. Nursing staff, who were mainly women, celebrated the success of their patient care and did not associate the spread of the disease with their work. I mean, that to me is really cool. I feel like, first of all, nurses are angels. I know this to be true. But second of all, I mean, don't we know that women just... There's a difference between women and men when sickness is concerned. I mean, am I right or am I right? (laughs) I saw another funny meme that said coronavirus is just like the common cold, except like when a man gets a cold. (laughs) I know that's not nice, but it is funny. Um, But really, like, what an interesting concept to consider that you have. First, you have a war. So that meant lots of boys were leaving home. Colleges were empty. That made the open, that was just perfect timing for women to start attending college more. And then the fact that many of those women came out, came out of college with nursing degrees and went into service right in time for them to be needed during a global pandemic. I mean, that's so interesting to me. It's really interesting. So I'm trying to think of a parallel. Now we have, we have plenty of nurses already. Okay. We already have like a historically huge percentage of women go to college. I think maybe right now it's like more women than men go to college. I think that's, that might be true. So the workforce thing is completely different, um, in 2020, but I kind of thought to myself, what do we have a sudden influx of? We have a ton of people who all of a sudden, and I'm just going to generalize and say that maybe there are a lot of them are moms. I know they're not all moms. Um, I have one friend who's like the token homeschool dad. Um, so he definitely counts, but there's a lot of moms and other caregivers who are now suddenly because of the fact that school has been canceled and I expect school to get canceled for the rest of the year from, for most everybody. Not, it's not just Kansas. Um, Kansas is just the first one to do it. I think everybody's going to end up doing it. But we suddenly have all of these caregivers who are, boom, insta-homeschoolers. And so it kind of makes me wonder, like, what will that, like, what effect will that have on us? I think it could go, I think it could go one of two ways. And both are positive, in my opinion, because I am a homeschool mom. I'm also a teacher. Um, I think it could go one of two ways. The first way 
would either be um, that a lot of people are going to discover what a secretly cool and awesome thing it is to get to homeschool because of the fact that like you're the boss of you and you decide when your day starts and you decide when your day ends and you decide what curriculum you do and you decide what field trips you do. And like some people I think might really, after they get, you know, kind of past the break-in period, I think some of them might really start to be like, man, this is kind of cool. Like I'm the boss and I get to make all the decisions. And they might even really start enjoying the fact that they're not tied down to all of the stuff that encompasses traditional like classroom education. So I think there's a possibility that we might have a sudden societal turn towards increased numbers of people homeschooling. Like, because I think there's a chance that it could end up being a positive experience for a lot of families. Then on the flip side, (laughs) this is, it's going to sound like a negative, but it's really, it's really still a positive. On the flip side, there are going to be millions of parents who are suddenly like, OMG, my kids' teachers are saints. We should pay them way more. I should stop emailing them every single time the class dojo is not updated one hour after school is done. And I should give them grace about whether, you know, if they lose something, if they forget to enter a grade. Like, I think there's a good, good, good chance that all of a sudden teachers will very suddenly get a huge, huge load of public praise and appreciation and support and all of that stuff. So either way you dice it, slice it or dice it, either way, I think it's a positive. But just like nurses, having nursing become a female dominant field and nurses are such, I mean, the nurse, like I said before, nurses are just angels. Um, that is exactly how my grandfather described one of the last nurses he ever had when he was, um, in his final months of life, he was in and out of the hospital a whole bunch of times. And he had this sweet, sweet, amazing nurse. And, um, he called her an angel. And now I have the pleasure of knowing her as an, as a personal friend. And she truly is an angel. So more power to you nurses. And also all of these teachers. I mean, I used to be a teacher for pay. Now I'm just a teacher at home, but yeah, I think there's a chance that we could all gain a huge load of perspective from it. Um, so the history is a little, the, the history is a little fuzzy about whether or not the Spanish flu really compares to the coronavirus as far as like, we don't know yet. I mean, it's not, it's not the beginning of it for the world, but it is the beginning of it for our country and every country is having some different outcomes, but we don't know yet what, how it's going to end. We're not there yet. We're not even into like really strict, um, quarantines and things like that. That's, I think that's coming, but, um, I'm just really, I'm really interested to see how it plays out. Really interested. And so I think that it could really go two ways. This is my theory. I'm thinking that either the first way, which is sort of a negative, this is like the negative, this is the glass half half empty way. Okay. The negative way is that everybody is going to shift into um, like survival mode and, um, probably similar to what has happened before. Like probably during the great depression, there was a lot of this as far as just like sheer desperation 
to have the the minimum, you know, the bare necess- the bare necessities of things that you need. You know, I think this is this is why we're seeing like toilet paper is selling out. I mean, nobody needs that much toilet paper at one time, but it's that fear mentality, you know. Um, same thing with like some people being super strict about quarantine. Other people are like, eh, whatever. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But I think there's a chance that we could all go. We could, and when I say all, I don't mean. I don't mean 100% of people, I mean society. So a majority of people, a lot of people, enough to change our social norms. A lot of people are going to go into survival mode, paranoid mode, germaphobe mode, which another thing I've seen that's been, that's been making me laugh is like where people are like, okay, help me understand this. Um, it's always been recommended to wash your hands. So why are we just now suddenly running out of soap <laughs> or Purell or whatever? Um, but I think it's totally possible that some of these problems could could devolve into a social spiral of sorts, especially if we have like economic depression going on, if, if unemployment, all those things. So there's all kinds of negative things that I can see happening that might shape social norms for for the negative. Okay at least in the short term. And I'm sure that that was the case with the Spanish flu. But what I don't know about the Spanish flu is I don't know if there were, and this is what I kept trying to find and I wasn't successful at, but I don't know if there were certain changes to the social norms that were positive. Now, the fact that the the Spanish flu epidemic happened like concurrent with World War One, and the whole world is just in a massive amount of upheaval and you know, death and destruction and whatever. Maybe it was just like the one-two punch and, you know, it was really hard to find a silver lining. But what I'm kind of thinking in my glass half full perspective is that I think we have a real chance here to, for better, for worse, as far as it concerns, whether we have a lot of people that get sick And we have, you know, whether it's worst case scenario, like they're saying could potentially happen with hundreds of thousands of people being sick or millions of people being sick and dying and all that stuff, whether that happens or not, I hope it doesn't. I pray it doesn't. Whether it goes to worst case scenario or not, I think that we all have a chance to be able to gain a lot of perspective about what are the things that really make this life worth living. Because, you know, when we're faced with these life and death sort of situations and musings and you have to confront your mortality, you know, we hear all of the sort of like memed platitudes of like, when I die, I'm not going to wish I had spent more time at work, you know, but it's really actually kind of hard to live that in your day-to-day life because in your day-to-day life, you have real life stuff going on all the time. There are people to take care of. There's bills that need to be paid. There's errands that need to be run. There's things that need to be purchased. You know, there's money that has to be earned. Like there's a lot of things really in a normal life that make it super easy for us to get bogged down in all of those details. And so I'm really hoping that with this forced amount of slowdown that is upon us, like you won't be able to go shop because the stores are closed. You won't even be able to online shop because Amazon's not going to deliver it. You won't even be able to like binge watch Netflix maybe because there's so many people trying to get on the internet to work remotely. Like we've never 
tested this many people <laughs> on the internet. Like we might could, we might actually break the internet y'all. I'm just waiting. But with all of this stuff that's going on and this forced slowdown, what if we were all able, even if it's just a small like moment in time, what if we were all able to experience what a more peaceful and slower life feels like? Now, for me, I already live a pretty slow life because of the fact that we're a stay-at-home family. But I was even surprised. So our kids haven't left um, home. They've left the house. They've been outside. But they have not left home since last Thursday. After I picked them up from swim team last Thursday, it was that evening that we started getting all of the text and the emails that this is canceled and this is canceled and all this kind of stuff. And so we kind of, at that point in time, we decided, okay, the kids are going on lockdown. We'll try and just limit the amount of time that we're out of the house. So our kids haven't left home since Thursday. Now, I truly, I truly thought, oh, this is going to be no big deal. We hardly ever go anywhere anyway. We only have three activities we do. Like, no big deal. They, they have had the worst cabin fever I've ever seen from them. And I mean, we have spent a lot of time in cramped quarters. It's not even that they're in cramped quarters. It's just like, I had no idea how much stock they put in their three activities that they get to do a week. So it's been eye-opening for me because in my mind, I think we're super busy because I'm the one that has to get them to all the things and make sure that they have all the stuff for all the things and everything. And I'm the one that's like doing their homeschool curriculum and making sure that they're checking the boxes and whatever. So in my mind, I feel really busy. But I know that even our family compared to most normal families, we live a very slow life. We are home most of the time. You know, we're probably only gone from home a cumulative, like, I don't know, maybe 15 hours a week. That's not much at all. That's not even two full work days. So I, and, and with that said, like, I love our slow life. I really do. And anytime we start to get more busy, like if I try and take on something else, you know, like add a little activity or like the kids will be like, I want to try such and such, or I want to do this and that. And so I'll go look into it. I'll be like, okay, well, what would we have to do? And I start to think, oh man, but if we do that, then we'll have something on Tuesday and Wednesday and Sunday. That's three days we have something. Oh, and then with twice a month, we have art on Thursday. So that's four days. So I always, my, my gut reaction is always like, no, 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 let's do less. Let's do less. I didn't realize that my kids put so much stock in the things we did do. So I'm at, that's part of the perspective I'm going to try and keep as we, you know, emerge from this whenever that time happens. But I'm really, really hoping that we can all come away from this time with some perspective of some things that we won't take for granted in the future. And I saw a really awesome graphic of this. And so these are not my words. These are somebody else's, but I wanted to share the things on this graphic because they were just, they were so interesting and stark to me as perfect examples of, of the types of things that we totally take for granted. This is written by someone named Laura Kelly Fanucci. I'm going to assume that's how you say it. And this, this really hit me. This really did. Okay. It's kind of like a poem, sort of like a meme, looks like a meme, reads like a poem, but it goes like this. When this is over, may we never again take for granted a handshake with a stranger, full shelves at the store, conversations with neighbors, a crowded theater, Friday night out, 
the taste of communion, a routine checkup, the school rush each morning, coffee with a friend, here comes my train, the stadium roaring, each deep breath, a boring Tuesday, life itself. When this ends, may we find that we have become more like the people we wanted to be, we were called to be, we were hoped to be, and may we stay that way better for each other because of the worst. I just feel like that says it all. (laughs) I really do. I really think that if history, history is the greatest teacher, right? Didn't somebody say that? I think maybe it was Dr. Phil that said that, but (laughs) history is a great teacher. And I mean, if there's something that people are usually remembered for is when they have overcome, um, obstacles and come out better the other side. So that is my simplified, positivized approach to how we're going to get through this thing. So I'm going to keep recording. Um, now I, I would love to say, Oh, I have all this time on my hands now because you know, I can't go out and do anything. But like I said, my life was already sort of stay at home. So (laughs) it's been kind of interesting to see how it was or wasn't affected. But, um, I'm going to be really interested to see how this, um, you know, oral history, um, goes keeping track of this whole thing. So with that, I have reached the end of my thoughts for the night and I'm going to say all the stuff I usually say, but if you were able to find some value in this podcast, if it brought some joy to you or kept you busy, kept your mind off COVID-19 for 41 minutes and 29 seconds. If that carried any value for you, um, you can express that in a monetary form and it's really easy. You just go to oddlyadulting.com and at the top of the page, there's a big button that says donate. You click the button, it takes you to PayPal and you can feel free to punch in whatever number you want. Um, I've had some people give some fun coded donations I had a $20.07 for the year 2007 when we met. I had a friend do the exact amount of her favorite Starbucks order of a sandwich and a coffee. Um, So just whatever. It's dealer's choice. It's completely up to you. But doing that helps put a little bit of coin in the coin purse for me to keep this um, hobby going without it creating an expense, so to speak. So if you're interested in that, you can find me at oddlyadulting.com. You can also find me by emailing me oddlyadulting at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram with the handle at oddlyadulting. And I would be very interested to know what are you doing during this COVID quarantine time? Are you actually quarantining yourself or are you being brave and going out there and mixing with all of the airborne germs? Um, are you on day five and you've already eaten all your quarantine snacks? Um, tell me what you're doing. I'm interested. I would really like to know if all of this time now that we're going to be spending not out, but in, maybe we can make some more connections. I'd be really excited to do that. So also, if you've been listening for more than two episodes, you know that I say the same thing at the end of every episode. And that is, if you made it all the way through this, I love you. And Jesus does too. Wash your hands, cover your cough, stay safe. Love y'all, bye.
intro music is by Kevin McLeod. Winner, winner.